Welcome to the Living Worship Podcast. Um, I'm excited that you're with me again this week. Um, trying things a little bit differently. We had a mix-up with our filming that normally I get done on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, this is Thursday morning uh, that we're, we're getting this done, but that's okay. Uh, these things happen. Uh, we're doing a survey through the book of John. Um, we're picking up in chapter 6 this morning. And we're talking about the feeding of the 5,000, but specifically looking at the part of the story that we don't actually always look at um, and really what the point of what that miracle was and what Jesus was trying to say. Uh, but I'm going to give a little bit of the exposition leading into this because it is also very important. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he's healing the sick, and specifically he heals a crippled man who has had this condition for more than 38 years. And in the process, this man goes to the temple, he worships, and the Pharisees are like, who did this? And the man says, well, Jesus did it. And the Pharisees get angry with Jesus for the fact that he was helping people on the Sabbath, that he was healing them. They were mad that he healed this man. Okay, well, so Jesus tells them, well, you guys have a fake religion, right? You're worshiping the law. You're not really trying to honor God with your lives, and you're not getting the point. And so um, Jesus goes on his way. Things are becoming more politically charged between him and the Pharisees. And so he makes his way back to Galilee. And at this point, Thousands of people are following him because they've seen the miracles that he's been doing. They want to hear his teachings. And so he comes to the Sea of Galilee and he um, sits down on a rock on, on top of a hill. And his disciples surround him and they look out and there's like more than fifteen to 20,000 people. Now I had a student last night come and ask me, wait a second, Pastor, I thought that there were only 5,000. Well, they only counted the men, and it even says in the passage, men plus their women and children. So add in the women and children, it gives you an estimate of anywhere between five to probably about 20,000 people. That is quite a lot. So for the sake of our discussion, I'm going to keep referencing what I believe to be a more realistic number. Um, and because it keeps it in mind. So like when we talked about Exodus, talked about, yes, say 600,000 Israelites were in the Exodus, but really after all of the other people that were going along with them, it was really like one and a half million people. Okay. And so getting that into our heads is, is really important because we start to understand the scope of what God is trying to tell us in this. And so he, Jesus makes his way to Galilee. He starts to teach these tens of thousands of people are coming towards them. And um, they listen to what Jesus has to say, and in the midst of this, they start asking, well, what are we going to do for food? And, and Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows how he's going to take care of all of these people who are without food, who are hungry. And so Jesus, instead of just presenting the answer up front, he asks his disciples, and this is in verse 6 of chapter 6, he says, what do you guys think I should do? Well, if you look in the other Gospels, so say um, you can look at Mark 6, you can look at Matthew chapter 15. Um, the disciples' first response is, 
send them home, Jesus. They've got their own food. Send them home. And Jesus says, no, nope, we're not doing that. And then Philip says, well, Jesus, if, if we're going to feed all these people, it, well, we could try to buy it, but we would need 200 denarii, which is a day's wages. So that'd be 200 days wages. So Jesus, how are we going to raise that much money to buy food for everybody? Can't do that. Right. And so Philip's kind of being sarcastic with Jesus in this instance, if you really look at it. And then Andrew. So if you when you we ever whenever we see Andrew in the Gospels and he's not mentioned a ton, not compared to some, but he's always bringing people to Jesus. That's remarkable. And so he brings this small boy with this small lunch and he says, Jesus, um, I don't know what we can do with it. But here's, here's this food, here's this boy. So, of course, then Jesus presents the solution, which is, of course, you've probably heard of it. It's one of the more famous miracles in the Bible. Jesus lifts the food up to heaven. He gives thanks for it. And that's really important because, I mean, John mentions this twice, at least, about the giving thanks for this food and the miracle that Jesus brought down. And so the food didn't run out as they passed it out among everyone. And they ended up even with 12 baskets of leftovers after feeding 15 to 20,000 people off of one boy's small lunch. It's a miracle. It's amazing. And it actually ties Jesus to some of the prophets of the Old Testament whom God had similar miracles that he did through their lives. And and so he's not just tying Jesus to himself, he's tying Jesus to this um, historical legacy of the prophets that God has sent the Israel people, okay? And so uh, evening comes, and the people, after being fed, they try to make Jesus their king, and not like the Messiah king that Jesus was meant to be the first time he was here, but like a political warrior kind of king who would overthrow Herod and overthrow the Romans and would free the Israels, um, the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, from the oppression of these societies. They haven't had a free country since before Babylon took them. And the Romans gave them a lot of leeway, that's true, and so did the Persians. Um, but it's still not the same. You know that your country is being ruled by another country. You answer to them. And in fact, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had made alliances and treaties with the other governments so that they could have more political power within the society. Uh, it was not the system. It was not the, the way it was supposed to be. And so they tried to make Jesus their king. And so in the midst of that, Jesus sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. He says, go on without me. I'll meet you there. And he goes off by himself to pray, to be alone, to get away from the chaos that is erupting from these people who don't really understand why Jesus is here. And, and so he goes off, he's alone, and a storm starts brewing on the sea. And the disciples, um, they're not afraid of the storm, but they look out and they see Jesus walking on the water. And they're not afraid of the storm. They're afraid of Jesus. But you notice every time God does something supernatural like this, he always begins by saying, do not be afraid. When God reveals himself and he does these awesome supernatural things in our life, whether it's leading us in a supernatural way or revealing himself in a supernatural way, it always causes within us some kind of fear because we don't understand how it could be possible. 
But Jesus says, do not be afraid. And so they invite Jesus on board after he comforts them and they get to Capernaum. And the next morning, the crowds realize Jesus ain't there. All right, so let's pick it up. So we're in John chapter 6, verses uh, 22 through 31. We're going to breeze through the rest of chapter 6 as we talk about it. So it says, The next day the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God? They asked. Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. All right, and so the crowds are confused. Where's Jesus? They make their way to Capernaum because they saw the disciples go that way, even though they knew Jesus didn't get on the boat. But they find him there across the sea in Capernaum with the disciples. And they start asking him, prove it. Prove to us that you're the Messiah. Prove it. And Jesus says, you're not. You're not really looking for a Messiah. You're not really, you don't really want to know why I'm here. You don't want to follow my teachings. You just want more food. As in treating God as their genie, treating God as their slave. God, you do what we say, and then we acknowledge you that you're God. Mm, that's not really how it works, is it? Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And therefore, the Jews started complaining about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They still don't get it. And Jesus explains, you know, Moses isn't the one who provided that manna for your ancestors. God gave you that manna. And as he'll say in just a minute, uh, a minute I, they ate the manna and they died. A lot of them. Right? They weren't obedient, most of them, and, and, and so God provided for his people, but ultimately they ate it and they died. But God sent me here, Jesus, all right, to heal your hearts, to give you eternal security, to fix the spiritual brokenness in your life. I'm not 
here necessarily to fix your physical needs. I'm here to meet your spiritual needs, the needs that you're not concerned about. And so God wants to heal your hearts. It's more important than being hungry. But see, these people aren't interested in that. They want to have a king. They want to be fed, right? They don't want to be spiritually healed. So they start complaining. Isn't this just the son of Joseph? Isn't this the son of Mary that we've seen all this time? How can we believe him when he says he is the bread of heaven? And notice that Jesus says twice here, I am. He identifies himself with God by saying it just this way. That's really important. And they would have picked up on that context, right? So today in our modern English, if you're not familiar with some of the syntax of the Bible, you might miss that. But it's so important that when Jesus says, I am, he's identifying himself with the living God of the universe. Okay. And so uh, Jesus, as they start complaining, he, and this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Jesus actually gets a little sarcastic, not in a bad way, but a little sarcastic in order to make a bigger point. Okay. So verse 43 says, Jesus answered them, Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him to me, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I would give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that the Jews argued among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate. They died. The one who eats this bread lives forever. And he said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So it's likely even more people were listening to this message. So is Jesus encouraging cannibalism? No. No, no, he's not encouraging cannibalism here. He, he's making a bigger point, though. He's talking about making him central in your life. So just as we need food at least three times a day, and if you're like me and my toddlers, uh, plus snacks, okay? He's saying, you should be relying on me. You should be seeking me out. I should be your priority more than food. So more often than you eat and drink, you should be pursuing me. That... That's a lot of your day. That's a lot of your life. But of course, these Jews at this point, they were not picking up on the sarcasm because they were thinking with their stomachs. And they're saying, well, we told Jesus we were hungry and now he's telling us that we need to eat him? Gross. They're not getting it. They're not getting it. It's a hard teaching then when you're thinking about it that way. So, 
like I said, just like as often as you need to eat, seek Jesus. As often as you need to use the bathroom, purge sin from your life. Like it, all of it, your whole life has to be about that. But just like cannibalism is horrible and gross, right? And, and it is, right? Sinful humanity, those outside the faith, are repulsed by our need for a savior. And so he's painting a picture with sarcasm to make this bigger point. Just like food and drink become a part of you, they help you to grow. You have to let Jesus become the major part of your life to help you change and to grow. But most people, they don't want any part of that. They don't want to believe the fact that they are broken, that they are sinful, and that they need a savior from themselves. All right, so we're going to pick it up at verse 66. It says, From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So out of the tens of thousands of people that had been seeking Jesus out, when Jesus made it very clear, as if he hadn't already done so, but when he made it very clear to them directly what his mission, what he was about, what they had to do, they weren't interested. They were interested in a Messiah they could control and serve their physical needs right now. The needs that they thought were important. They didn't want the Messiah who came for their real needs, their spiritual needs. They didn't want it. So who remained? Not many. Specifically tells us the 12, the ones that Jesus sought out himself. And Peter says, and he speaks up for all of them, Jesus, we're going to follow you. We know that you are the Messiah. And Jesus follows it up as you finish the chapter. He says, that's good, Peter. Eleven of you, that's true. One of you is not true. And Jesus doesn't point out Judas in this instance, but he makes it very clear to Peter that presuming to speak for other people is not a smart idea. You need to let people speak for themselves. So what can we pull out of this text? Well, correct teaching of Scripture draws sinners to God. It brings them to repentance, to eternal life, to Jesus through the truth, right? So it always stirs the souls of those who listen. But if Jesus spoke truth this way, and Jesus was perfect, not just perfect, but he was God, and thousands of people decided not to, to go that way. Well, that can kind of give us some encouragement, actually, because then when we spread the gospel and people walk away, we'll understand the same thing happened to Jesus. Not everyone is going to respond positively to the message. The point is that they get the message, that you not just live it, that's important, but that you speak it with your mouth that it's on your lips, that it is an obvious part of your life. And then it's their responsibility after that fact to make a decision. So any embarrassment we might feel um, is really poorly placed because it's pride. It's saying, I care more about my possible embarrassment and humiliation than I do about the souls of the people around me. And then once they hear the message, right, then it's their responsibility to 
ask God to join them in their life. And so when they hear the message, God reaches down to man, but man has to reach up. And it's this dual process here. Okay, and so there will be those who reject the word, the Bible, and Jesus. They're not going to get it. They're not going to respond to it. And that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is just to get them the word. But the Bible also says that wherever the word is preached, people will respond. Not that all people will, but people will. But they can't unless they don't unless they hear it, right? And so those who accept and believe the word, they make Jesus their savior, their leader, their master of their life. They receive eternal life with God, this spiritual new birth. So what I'm going to leave you with this week is, are you spiritually hungry? Is there a void in your life that you're trying to fill with basically anything you can get your hands on? Most everyone, that's true. Because of our brokenness, because of the lack of a relationship with God, that void is there and we fill it. We fill it with alcohol, we'll, we'll fill it with drugs, we'll fill it um, with, um, I'm, I call them culturally acceptable uh, addictions, okay? And that could be sports, hobbies, people. I mean, you try and cram all these things in your life to fill that void and it's never, ever, ever enough. Because it's a Jesus God-sized hole. And only Jesus can satisfy you forever. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Just like every day, you get hungry again and again and again. Your spiritual hunger will never be satisfied unless you fill it with Jesus. Thank you for joining us on the Living Worship Podcast. Um, please like, share, and subscribe. And um, if you're on a audio platform, please rate and review. That really helps the algorithms so that more people can find um, the work that I'm trying to do through this podcast. I know this is not a flashy uh, program or anything like that. It's not meant to be. Um, what it does do, and what I want it to do, is just to get the simple message of the gospel out there. So many people will look at the Bible and see it as inaccessible and confusing, and it doesn't have to be. And that's what this is for. So please share it, pass it along, and uh, let's get the message out. All right. Thanks. Bye.